what I find interesting this year is really about coming up with interesting ways to get more out of the architecture that is not just um, throwing more data at it. And um, so with a mixed role, which is a mixture of experts, people combine multiple um, modules like the um, linear layers later the, uh, to make a model that is larger, but it doesn't use all the modules during inference at each time step. So it's kind of also smarter. It's not like as brute force as it was before. And uh, all the model merging is also another topic. Um, so model merging would be um, combining multiple models into one model. So there is um, stochastic weight averaging, for example, to um, merge a model during the training trajectory. trajectory or there is also um, merging completely different models uh, into one model. Uh, not completely. They have to, of course, have the same weights, but models trained on different data sets uh, into one model. And, and I feel like this is a theme where people are now focused on really optimizing um, small, I mean, small in quotation marks, small uh, large language yeah. models. And yeah. uh, I think that is a trend we will see for at least the upcoming months where people want to get more performance out of LLMs. Hi, friends, and welcome to this very exciting episode of Leading with Data. Today, I have with me Sebastian Rashka, uh, who uh, did his PhD back, completed his PhD back in 2017. He was also a guest at our uh, AMA back in December 2016. Uh, he's one of the leading researchers, has spent time in academia, and is now uh, a lead educator at Lightning AI. And uh, personally, I've been fascinated by his work, uh, his research, and lately has been writing a lot of uh, very interesting articles on all the developments happening in Gen AI. So I'm looking forward to this discussion, and I'm sure there is so much to learn from him. Sebastian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for the kind invitation. Uh, I must say, uh, analytics video, I've been aware of it at least um, for like 10 years, I would say, when I was an uh, um, undergrad or uh, first year in grad school. I think it was founded and uh, it was one of the big places for data science. So yeah, I'm uh, honored to be invited uh, on your show today and I'm excited to chat about everything related to um, AI, data, large language models and yeah, everything that's exciting. Great. So, Sebastian, your uh, journey has been, you know, you've spent quite a, a bit of time in academia. You're right now leading AI educator at Lightning AI. And in between, you've also spent time in industry consulting and working. So, uh, in your journey, from your perspective, what were some of the key pivotal moments? And, and again, you've worked in very different fields, right? So, your research was in... Uh, uh, at the intersection of AI and biotech. So, so can you elaborate a bit on your journey and then how it happened? What were the key decision points for you? Mm, I would say um, my uh, I would say one of the key decisions back then, uh, 2012-ish, was to take a class in um, statistical pattern uh, classification, where it was all focused on Bayesian methods for um, predictive models. Uh, so not only predictive modeling, but the focus of this class was pattern uh, classification. So mm -hmm. it was essentially something that I found very interesting because I was working at the time on um, detecting or 
predicting the activity of small molecules uh, in a biology context. And yeah, that got me really interested in um, statistics and uh, machine learning. And I also took yeah many follow-up classes. I would say that was like the pivotal moment where, yeah, I was really excited about, uh, about that. I was using R uh, a lot at the time because, um, yes, statistics and R uh, went hand in hand back then. But um, it was also like uh, when I discovered Python and um really got into that. And I think from there, um, yeah, I, I just had fun and uh, worked on projects and learned a lot along the way from like what, what, helped, what helped, I think, was working on these um, bio problems because the data was usually very messy and you had to do a lot of coding um, by hand to just get the data in the right format and then think about how do you um, feed it to the machine learning algorithm and so forth. And I think that was basically where I acquired a lot of um, hands-on experience with uh, messy data. And uh, yeah, you mentioned I was uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where um, I was in academia then after um, I graduated and got my PhD. And it was an exciting time. I uh, focused on uh, also research uh, and deep learning research more in general, like moving away from uh, biology applications. And um yeah, I would say I, I always liked teaching, basically. I liked mm -hmm. uh, writing blog posts and teaching. So in academia, it's usually, I would say, 50% is uh, research and 50% yeah. is um, teaching. Um, and eventually, though, I must say uh, I was there for three, four years. Um, mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed it. I had great colleagues and everything. But, you know, at some point, you're teaching uh, similar classes every semester. And I was like... Um, I was ready to try something new, um, like moving from introductory deep learning to more like a research-focused uh, education, mm -hmm. um, like more, let's say, um, latest trends and or latest developments. And so that's where I then uh, went to Lightning AI, where we are developing a, a platform. Uh, so we are developing a platform for uh, running experiments. Um, and in addition to that, I'm also producing a lot of educational material of, uh, at Lightning AI. So yeah, also happy to chat more about um, any of these topics later. But just to answer the question, I would say um, the pivotal moments were really just yeah taking a class, getting excited about the topic, diving in, getting some experience here in academia, and then eventually in industry. Yeah. Very interesting, and and he also wrote a book on uh, Python machine learning, which which went on to become one of the best selling books. When when was that in this uh, period? Um, that was, if I remember correctly, that was either two thousand fourteen or fifteen. Uh, it was a long time ago. That was also the time where I was like working with and in machine learning like for two to three years, and I was like, okay, this is a, a great time to write up everything I've learned, and uh, basically. I wrote this book. So when I write materials, I also selfish, selfishly, I write things um, that I would like to read in a way. Like, And so I also wrote that book for me as a kind of like a, almost like a notebook, like of things that I learned and things I wanted to share and things I'm excited about. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, there were a lot of uh, future editions. So we um, had then so the first book I ended with implementing a multi-layer perceptron from scratch in um, NumPy because yeah. I really like <laughs> doing from scratch <laughs> implementation because that's, I think, a great way yeah. to learn. And mm -hmm. um, I think I used Theano back then just to show that you can also uh, yeah, use a framework for that, of course, because from scratch implementations are only, I would say, for educational purposes uh, most of the time. And I think that the second edition was TensorFlow. The third edition was 
many, many, many more chapters, also in TensorFlow. And then uh, we moved to PyTorch um, in 2021, 2022. So that's what I'm also focused on. I'm uh, almost exclusively uh, working in PyTorch these days. Um, I also have a new book um, coming out in uh, April. That that is a, so. I have to, actually two books in the works. Uh, I'm also happy to chat about those. But one would be more on the advanced topics um, that are usually not covered in introductory material. It's not a coding book, but mm -hmm. it's a book uh, explaining, let's say, how to evaluate large language models. What are the different ways um, to use multiple GPUs for deep learning? And so all these more like advanced okay. concepts that are usually mm -hmm. not. Um, covered in introductory books or introductory courses because they are slightly of um, too, too advanced, uh, I would say, or not too advanced, but um, things I personally, when you design a course for the university or for, uh, yeah. write a book, you always have to make sure, um, I mean, there's a, a limited time you have per semester right. and you always have mm -hmm. to be, uh, so there are so many exciting topics and you have to be always very careful about, okay, which is a topic that is really interesting but is not absolutely necessary and then you remove that topic because otherwise you wouldn't have time <laughs> for all the topics that need to be covered and so in this book i'm covering kind of like the um more intermediate advanced topics it's called machine learning mm -hmm. q and aa uh, q and ai sorry and um it's from q and a question answer it's q and ai it's a little pun and the okay. the mm -hmm. It has like 30 um, short chapters where I'm explaining like uh, more intermediate and advanced topics. And in addition to that, um, that, that was uh, finished like last summer, but the print version is coming out soon. It is always also, it, it takes a time from let's say finishing a manuscript to the print version because there are also yeah, editing steps, print, but yeah, it's, yeah mm -hmm. coming out soon. And currently I'm excited about a book um, building a large language model from scratch, which, I'm, which is what I'm currently working on. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is, again, back to my roots, uh, implementing things from scratch, uh, basically uh, implementing a chat like a chat GPT like LLM from the ground up. So starting with the tokenizer, then implementing the uh, architecture pre-training, loading also mm -hmm. pre-trained weights. So for that, I um, currently use GPT-2 because it's like the common denominator, the weights, weights are available. Of course, there are more advanced LLMs, but the goal of this book is really the education of how an LLM works, because if you once you get the hang of it, um, all the LLMs like Llama, uh, Mistral, they only have a few tweaks. They are almost the same architecture. So so little things like a multi-query attention and these types of things. Um, and yeah, and then I'm also, but uh, I'm not stopping at the pre-training. There's also a step for fine-tuning. So there's fine-tuning mm -hmm. for classification and there is um, fine-tuning, supervised instruction fine-tuning, a chapter on that. And then also mm -hmm. the alignment. So with um, either, I haven't fully decided yet, <laughs> either uh, with um, direct preference optimization or RLHF, um, the classic PPO um, algorithm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, that is one of the last chapters. So I'm still debating which one to use for that. What? Uh, that will be essentially the full journey from architecture, pre-training, loading pre-trained weights, and fine-tuning, basically, to get something like ChatGPT, of course, smaller scale. So you will be able to run that on a single GPU. But if you wanted to do, you can also train that uh, longer. It's just not, I would say, economically um, a good idea to just train a network for the full, I don't know, for the full month, uh, just for fun, because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. So I'm also showing how to yeah. load the pre-trained weights, essentially. Yeah. Interesting. And when is this book coming up? 
Um, this might be early 2025 because again, there's like the gap between finishing it and yeah, um, getting it to print. So currently the plan is um, I started uh, last summer. I have a lot of, I have almost all the code um, together. I'm just writing the chapters now. I'm planning because I have other things to do. It's only, I work only on this like um, very early in the morning and relatively late at night, but I'm aiming for one chapter per month. So right now I'm at okay. chapter four and this should be finished if things go well by August uh, this year. Okay. Um, but the book won't be out, I think, until 25. But there is a, uh, it's with Manning. So they have this early access program. So if you want right. to, you can actually um, already read the chapters uh, one to three, I think. They're already uploaded there. So, and there will be oh, new yeah. chapters added. So it's so getting released does... as you're writing them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And for the other book, this will be out in April, but there's also an early access version where the whole manuscript is already available because that one is already finished. Yeah. And that's uh, that one is also with Manning, or that's with some other that is with uh, No Starch Press. So that is okay. Um, yeah. And sorry to talk so much about my books, but um, <laughs> it's just something that no, was no, on. It's, uh, it's a Monday when we are recording this, and usually my weekends, um, I'm very uh, yeah. Right now, I'm really focused on the books on the weekend. So I'm just coming from the weekend and we, you just mentioned books. And I was like, oh, that's something I like to chat about. No, no, it, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I would love to spend a bit more time in terms of, uh, you know, one of the things which clearly comes out is, you know, you take a topic and then kind of build it from scratch. Uh, you know, uh, you mentioned multiple instances when you've done that and you've shared that in your blog so uh and then you uh you know you came from a, a or you were studying the uh, bio uh as a, as a subject as well for quite some time right so uh uh when you do this approach right the uh so uh there are pros and cons to it right so you obviously gain a lot of understanding while you do it but the con is that you might end up spending a lot of time which may not uh, kind of be really applicable in the industry or you might have a library where you can kind of directly use and then get some results very quickly right so uh, so what motivates you to kind of do this exercise again and again on different topics and then what is that driving force when you go through uh, these journeys or, or you know these uh, essentially experiences to build these things from scratch and, and share it with the world I think for me, it's really to get a really good, um, deep understanding of how things work. Um, mm -hmm. Like you said, I would not use this um, from scratch implementation most of the time for an industry application because um, it's most of the time not the most efficient one. And like you said, it's very um, time consuming. And uh, But it is, I think, still at the same time, very uh, valuable. So... For example, in this um, build an LLM from scratch book, in the last chapter, I will also show people how to use um, existing libraries uh, because mm -hmm. this is like for education purposes to implement it from scratch. But in reality, you maybe want to use, um, let's say, a more, uh, more optimized library. Um, but then why doing it at all? I mean, for me, it's, it's first, it's fun, but also you can really learn a lot. Like there are questions where about LLMs, for example, where people have a lot of articles explaining, trying to explain a topic like um, an LLM uh, generates one token at a time and why is it sometimes not the same token? There's a lot of, let's say, um, 
I wouldn't say hand wavy, but a lot of trying to explain something and that is be it's very abstract and it's still confusing to people if they just hear the explanation. If you just show it, uh, if you show the different um, like steps, for example, let's say you have already built the architecture and then you are sampling or trying to generate text, you take one token at a time, you append it to the input, feed it back in, and then you have the decoding strategies where you have either a greedy decoding or um, with a multinomial distribution or uh, yeah. top P sampling and so forth. You you can literally see why or how the tokens are sampled and why the LLM generates what it generates. And I, I think this is a great way to learn because you can really um, look into how things work and you can make changes. You you know, okay, what if I change this to that? What is going to happen then? You know, it's, I mean, I think it's a great way to learn. Mm -hmm. And then um, you can also self, yeah, and you can self-check yourself. If you implement a GPT architecture, you the weights are available you can load the weights into your architecture and if your architecture doesn't work if it produces some weird outputs you know okay there's a bug in my code and then you can go back and change it until let's say you get it right and mm -hmm. i think that's also a great learning exercise because you already have the, in cases of llms you have the solution you have the weights and if the same weights if you plug them into your architecture they don't work you know there's something off and um and once you have it then implemented it's also you understand all the code because you wrote it yourself and then you can make a lot of changes um to the code to experiment with it and if you take someone else's library and make changes to the code it's usually most of the time you honestly don't know what's happening because it's relatively complicated and um yeah so i think once you you have a working implementation you build yourself it gives you a lot of opportunities to um to experiment with that and it's very rewarding i must say it can be frustrating yeah. if you implement something and it doesn't work that's uh very uh sometimes very frustrating but then once you get it to work it's one of the best feelings in the world in my opinion when it works and it generates the correct output and um yeah so for me it's um for educational purposes but also very um, motivating actually yeah and and uh from your experience, what is the right time to do it? So should you experiment with the actual library before you go on this journey to build it from scratch? Or that's usually a good place to start by itself. So for example, if I'm, let's say, trying to use GPT, uh, uh, should I experiment with it, see some applications, and then go and uh, kind of build it from scratch? Or do you think I can uh, uh, already start it from scratch? Um, I'm, it depends on how much time you have. I mean, implementing mm -hmm. something from scratch is usually a big time commitment. Um, yeah. So with that book, for example, it will guide you through the process, but it will still be a four or 500 page book. So if you need to get something done by the next day or by next week, <laughs> that that's maybe not one. the ideal time to um, do the from scratch implementation. And I would also say it's a good idea in general to maybe not start with a, a from scratch implementation so that you at least have a feeling of um, what, it, what, what you're trying to accomplish, basically, to get some um, example of, of the task that you want to uh, accomplish and also get a feeling of how it works. Um, like you give this particular data in, this is the output. So to just play around with more like how it works and then i think building it from scratch is more like a second step it's like i would say almost with um driving a car i think 
if you tell someone uh, has never seen a car and you build the car, <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. But I think it doesn't hurt if you have driven a car before, or you know at least the concept of a car, how it works um, before you start building one, right? I, I think right. that is um, a good uh, maybe analogy. I also wanted I to say, it. like, back to this um, book. So if you build a car, it's probably not going to be the fastest car. It's like um, you, you have a car. The, so if you have an existing car, it gets you to places, it works. It's something you would then use when you need to go shopping or you have an errand to run. You use that car that you already have that you bought from someone or like from a mm -hmm. company that manufactured that car because it's usually more or less reliable. Um, when you build yeah. your own car, um, that is more, mostly because people enjoy it and because they want to learn how a car works. And so mm -hmm. this car, let's say if you start completely from scratch would probably not be a very fancy car. It would be a very basic car <laughs> that maybe drives, yeah. um, but you understand exactly how it works because you build oh, it from sure. scratch, maybe with an instruction set. And if something breaks, you also know probably how to fix it or what's broken because you, you know the parts that went into that car. And I, yeah. I think that's the analogy where you can use that car, you can drive that car, but it's probably not the best car. <laughs> so, But then at the same point, uh, the reason is also why you build this car is to get a better understanding. So when your real car is maybe broken, there are maybe some things you can fix there too, maybe doing an oil change or if something doesn't sound right. I mean, there's a lot of electronics in a car nowadays, but for basic things, you also get a better idea of how that car works. And um, yeah. Then maybe also uh, continuing with this analogy, maybe it's also if you want to get into, let's say, LLM research. In this case, let's say it helps um, for the car analogy if you have built a car before you, let's say, start designing new cars. Like even if you mm -hmm. join a company like a car company, it it is a good idea if you know how cars work because you know then better um what to like what you're talking about and what you um want to accomplish yeah. at that company basically so in, in that sense if you want to get into llm research i think it's also a good idea to have at least built a basic llm so that then it gives you a better idea of how it's structured and then you can still learn under the hood how the advanced libraries work and um yeah mm -hmm. so but i think it, it and, there's a lot of advantages yeah <laughs> correct and then uh, i think uh, uh, domains where, uh, you know, you might need very different data, uh, this could be very, very useful, right? So uh, healthcare specifically, for example, could be a very interesting use case. Uh, uh, yeah, so that is, uh, yeah, good point. So uh, I think also with transformers, which is uh, like, it's an interesting topic um, because you have the LLMs that are based on the transformer architecture like the decoder mm -hmm. part of it. But then uh, if you look at vision transformers for computer vision for images, um, mm -hmm. it's almost the same concept. I mean, it's kind of like the same concept. You have the same attention mechanism instead of tokenizing words into tech, uh, instead of having words that you tokenize into tokens, you have image mm -hmm. patches that you, you patch up the image into smaller chunks, and then you also convert them into tokens. And these tokens, they are basically the same in, in both cases. So if you learn about uh, LLMs in language, that also will help you to understand vision transformers, for example. But then um, also what you, I think, wanted to get at is in medical applications, you have um, different, let's say, domain-specific texts. Uh, is that what you meant? Or yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you have your own LLM that also, yeah, if you want to work on something that is currently not supported, uh, if you have private data or something like that, your own LLM um, would also help. But there, I must say, a fairly <laughs> bad, so just um, 
there I would say you can also use an existing library because if you use an existing library, you don't have to use the pre-trained weights. You can use also okay. random weights. So in that case, yeah. I would say the from scratch might not be solving that problem, but it still helps you understand um, how LLMs work in case you want to optimize or change things or in general study LLMs, get a better feeling how, of how they work and so forth. So, yeah. Interesting. And uh, while you are creating these, uh, you know, uh, pieces of content, be it for your book or for your blog, have you uh, uh, incorporated generative AI assistance in the process or you're still, because it's very technical, it's not uh, in your workflows yet? Honestly, yeah, I uh, honestly, I do use LLMs also now to help me with the writing, but it's mostly for mm -hmm. fixing uh, errors. It's like um, okay. sometimes, it depends. So sometimes I can write a whole article without using anything. So I would just write it myself, but sometimes, I don't know, it depends on the day sometimes I have something it just doesn't sound right. I don't know. I have written this and it's like, hmm, somehow I don't like how it sounds and somehow I, I need some help here. And then I would just use an LLM and say, can you rephrase this sentence? And sometimes I like it better. Sometimes I like it worse, but I do that sometimes to just um, help me continue like that I don't get stuck at a certain passage that I don't like. Or sometimes I use it also, I mean, there are other tools for that, but I sometimes use it for a grammar a correction because I'm not a native speaker. Yeah. So sometimes I say um, correct grammar as a prompt and then put in my text and then um, it also helps. I don't always like the outputs, but um, what's nice is you don't have to take them, right? It's it, I, I don't fully automate anything. So I, I look at this and like, okay, this I like and this I don't like, and then I piece it together. But I would say mm -hmm. I don't use it extensively because um, usually I have a pretty clear idea what I want to write about. So um, mm -hmm. that's, I think is also important. I think you, if you want to create or write something, you have to be interested in the topic, right? And if you're already interested in the topic and yeah. you know what you write about, it, it usually flows out of you automatically. And then, but then the LLM can be helpful to polish it up basically, I would say, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh the other part which uh, I would love to, you know, delve deeper on uh, was this, uh, you know, academia versus industry. And, and and you mentioned briefly your reason why you moved from academia to industry. But uh, let's say from a perspective of uh, a postgraduate student who is, let's say, now coming out and, and has already done some uh, work in data science, uh, what would be the pros and cons or what, what sort of career uh, would they see if they were to, let's say, go in academia? What would uh, or what should be their framework to think about, let's say, spending time in academia versus spending time in uh, industry research and uh, pursuing their career in the industry? Huh, that is an uh, interesting question. I'm always a bit hesitant about uh, career advice because... Um, mm -hmm. I, I would say I, I don't want to give a wrong advice. I, I just wanted to say that up front, this, don't take this maybe too literally. Um, yeah. And also, I only have two data points here because I've only been in um, academia once and only in industry once. Um, so I only yeah. have these two perspectives, like one only one example from each uh, perspective. But I would say, yeah, in academia, yeah. what I liked um, was like, 
you are free to design your own research agenda and work on research projects. And I also mm -hmm. really like uh, working with students. It's very rewarding. Um, so you build your team and you work with your team on a really cool research project. I would say um, the only thing there is the limitation in academia is usually the um, compared to industry, the compute uh, access. I mean, this is also depends on which university and also it changes. Some universities have newer clusters, some need to update their clusters, but uh, in, in general, in industry, there's usually more access to, let's say, more resources for compute, where it is making it a bit easier to run nowadays larger experiments. Um, mm -hmm. In academia, then the advantage though is you can freely publish um, what you write. Um, so you design your research and you publish that research. The only thing is, um, of course, it's a good thing, but it's also, it can be frustrating sometimes because that's how your success is measured and um yeah conferences are very competitive these days so there is i think at, in europe and so forth a 20 percent acceptance rate 20 something percent and so on average i would say i mean of course it depends on how good your paper is but maybe let's say only every fifth paper gets accepted right if it's 20 percent mm -hmm. and you submit five times one time it gets accepted four times it gets rejected and that can also be frustrating, right? So in that sense, um, yeah. if publishing is very important and then sometimes it's not accepted because of an acceptance rate, this can be frustrating. So of course, there are cases where a paper doesn't get accepted because it's wrong. And then I think it shouldn't be, um, if it has errors, it shouldn't yeah. be accepted. Yeah. But there are also um, a lot of papers that are technically correct that have maybe not the biggest impact, but they ha the, the paper is correct. There is some interesting insight in there. And they don't get published because of quotas. And that can be frustrating. So that is one thing I would say um, that I did not like that much about academia, where um, <laughs> sometimes you you had some, something was correct, but I don't know, the reviewer didn't like a certain organization of the paper or minor things that get a paper, let's say, rejected. Or in general, like, um, I don't know, it's always a, somehow a noisy process and um mm -hmm. yeah so that, that could be one thing where i would say that's a downside um that the process is currently noisy but otherwise i think academia is a great place um to be but also so is industry that's the reason also why i'm in industry right so and for me it's um right now i have great colleagues and um, the difference mm -hmm. is i would say I work with people in a team who know more than I do, <laughs> so uh, which is great. So, so not universally, but there are areas um, where someone always knows something more than you do. In academia, you are usually, you, if you have a lab, um, students are extremely smart and dedicated, but you are basically more like taking a supervising role, whheras in, in an mm -hmm. industry, it also depends, but you have um, people who are more specialized in, in certain things. One person is, let's say, specialized more in, in server stuff. One is f fully specialized in multi-GPU um, stuff. And one person is really specialized in a certain research area and it all comes together and it's you're working more as a team um, there, I would say. I mean, in academia, that's yeah. true too. But in academia, I would say many people, um, uh, they have more the research background rather than the computing background. Which is also valuable, but I think, um, yeah, th that's one, one difference I noticed so far. So I think um, computing-wise, if you don't have a research position in industry, 
it is a it is actually quite cool if you have a lot of um, colleagues who know a lot of things you I, I, uh, can pick up there and learn from. And I think this is maybe also particularly true because I spent such a long time in um, academia where my background is more research, but then I joined a team where a lot of people are more computational rather, let's say, than research focused. And I, for me, it's great, basically. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, and, I and, learn a lot. Uh, and, and, yeah. So, yeah. And presuming when you made this transition, uh, uh, you would have uh, ended up spending a lot of time focusing on engineering and then a lot of uh, these practical challenges which uh, you might have come across in building the platform. Uh, is that is that? True? Uh, yeah. So I learned a lot, uh, like from the platform work, basically. But also, what's nice is we mentioned the challenges and everything. But so the the goal of the platform is also to remove these challenges. So the platform we built, uh, Lightning AI Studios, is basically mm -hmm. you can think of it as um, your own computer. Um, you have mm -hmm. access to Visual Studio Code, Jupyter, and so forth, but it's in the cloud. So um, okay. you don't have to... So basically, um, if you create a repository on GitHub, um, mm -hmm. you, there's, uh, so you have the code up there. But if you share that code, let's say it's, it's a research project, then it's really um, up to the person who downloads it to install all the requirements and um, get it to work. And this mm -hmm. is usually very challenging if you work with more advanced... Methods, for example, um, I was um, participating in the NeurIPS LLM efficiency challenge um, last year, mm -hmm. which was a mm -hmm. challenge to train one LLM on one GPU for one day, and um, yeah. this was a very exciting workshop. Yeah. And um, it was so there was a specific way you had to submit the submissions so that it gets uh, ranked also in the leaderboard and so forth, and then also mm -hmm. um, the organizers had to download the submissions and run them. And they were like Docker containers and was a bit tricky and so forth. And um, so so basically you have to, when you download it, install all the requirements and so forth. And for research code or any, any project, it can be a lot of um, hassle. And so with a platform, mm -hmm. it's essentially, you have all the code there, but you can also run it. You can run it um, on one GPU and multiple GPUs. Uh, you have a Visual Studio Code interface. You can use Jupyter Notebooks. So you never have to leave the environment. So it's essentially can think maybe of, of it like as Google Colab, but yeah. Google Colab with multiple GPU support and Visual Studio mm -hmm. Code support. And you can flexibly switch the machines. You never have to. So in Google Colab, if you switch a machine, your data is gone. You have to re-upload it and so forth. And this is like persistent. Mm -hmm. So with that, so we worked a lot on building this platform, but now that we have this platform, <laughs> there's not much hassle anymore. Actually, no hassle. So when I work my, on my research projects, I just use that now and um, yeah, I can just switch machines. I don't, once it's installed, um, like my Python requirements, it stays there. I never have to install it again. I can share it with my colleagues. We can collaborate mm -hmm. on that. And um, so, yeah, um, it was a lot of work getting it to work. It took like two to three years, but now that's there, it's actually um, really fun to work on research again. So, yeah. Interesting. And then the, this platform enables you to uh, essentially move uh, uh, the codes into production as well, or this is mainly for the um, training and, and building? No, the... You can do anything. You can really think of it as um, your own computer, but uh, it, it's in the cloud. But so on your own computer, you can use all the tools. So there's no risk. Mm -hmm. So there it's Visual Studio Code and Jupyter, and there are also plugins. But um, you okay. can also develop a, um, an app that uh, serves you an API endpoint for an application. 
So for the mm-hmm. LLM efficiency challenge, I did not work on it myself, but my um, a colleague. Um, so the leaderboard that was um, evaluating the submissions was actually built mm-hmm. uh, um, on studios. So that was in the back end, a studio running and connecting to Discord mm-hmm. and then posting okay. the results on uh, so evaluating the LLM and then posting the results back to Discord. So it was essentially also a studio. So it was an application built with a studio. So personally, I don't do uh, much production work in terms of building applications. I'm more like a research person, but you can do anything with that, basically. So you're not restricted only to training. Got it, got it. Very interesting. And uh, uh, these uh, models, or let's say if I go ahead and deploy, uh, would I need to sign up on Lightning A or I could use them through AWS and and some of these cloud providers? Uh, So how it works currently is you would have to make an account. There are uh, 30 free or 20 or 30 free credits where uh, mm-hmm. One credit is one dollar for GPU usage. I think it's even per month. Um, but so, so you can try it out for free. Um, mm-hmm. It's like Google Colab where you can use it for free. But if you want more compute, of course, yeah, right. uh, GPUs are not free. You would okay. pay. But um, you course, can. Yeah. And to your question, you can, as far as I know, connect your AWS account. So um, you can bring your own AWS account if you already have one. So you can use the credits from there. And we will also mm-hmm. enable um, where you can um, bring other cloud providers accounts in there. So, and we will also, uh, we are currently working on enabling, um, connecting your own uh, cluster. So we already have that with a certain number of bigger, so we work with a lot of companies and with some bigger companies, we already enabled that, but we will also roll that out for more people where if you are in university, you have a GPU cluster, you don't, let's say, want to use AWS accounts or any cloud credits, you can actually connect your own cluster um, because really the, the cool thing about the platform is the interface. So if you would see it, it's essentially, um, think of it like Visual Studio Code, Jupyter, and all the, it's like how you would code on your own computer, except you can flexibly switch the machine. And what's actually nice about that, I should maybe briefly mention that because, yeah, you can use multiple GPUs on other machines on AWS as well. But when I used AWS, usually how it worked was I was requesting a machine. So that was when I was a student, for example, I was requesting a machine and then um, I spin up the machine, have to install everything. Of course, there are containers. um, So you maybe start from that. Uh, You get everything to work, get your data up there. Um, but then you are still finding uh, bugs or trying to work um, to, to get the code to work because the reason you're using this is because locally you only had a CPU, you're switching to the GPU, and now you have to debug the code for the GPU. And the whole time mm-hmm. the machine is running, you're paying for that, right? So you're paying sometimes a, 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 a A100 machine, which is like $30 an hour, just to do basic yeah. debugging, basically. or if your experiment is finished, you are plotting results there and it's kind of like a waste of money to use an expensive machine not to run the code, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, in the platform, what you can do is you can switch between uh, the accelerator. You can use a CPU just to make sure your code is all running and let's say it looks okay. Switch to maybe one mm-hmm. GPU, uh, run it. And then once you're ready, you just switch to eight GPUs and then run it again. So you, you can, and then you can switch back. You can switch back and forth. It takes like a minute and all your files, all your data is there. So it's kind of like saving you money by not wasting, let's say, um, precious time on the expensive uh, GPUs. You only use them when you actually need them, basically. Yeah. Very interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, 
while you're doing all of this uh, uh, on the platform, essentially, uh, A, it is obviously convenient and then you're getting all of these things at one place instead of kind of uh, moving in different places. That's, that's the thing. Yeah, so uh, it's basically the goal is that you um, never, so once you, so let's say you start a new studio. I have my, let's say my book project. I have my book there. I install some requirements. So for example, uh, in chapter two, uh, I'm explaining how to build a tokenizer, but we are using then also Tick token um, from OpenAI because it's uh, a faster tokenizer. Mm -hmm. So we explain how to build a tokenizer, but then using that Tick token just for speed during training. And I would in install um, Tick token as a dependency in Py uh, Python, like pip install and so forth. And, yeah. But you only have to do it once. When you change the GPU, for example, then um, it, your whole environment is in, on that new machine on GPU. So you basically don't even think about um, different machines. It's basically the same thing where you connect different GPUs to it, basically. So in that sense, you don't have to reinstall anything. You don't have to transfer your data. It's, it's all there. It's as if you have your own computer and you connect a new GPU to that computer, basically. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, uh, sh shifting the topic uh, slightly, right? Last time, and this sure. was also some time back, uh, uh, this is December 16 when, when we last discussed, you had mentioned that, you know, you use Twitter feed as your first source of information in terms of what's happening in the domain and that helped you kind of uh, see what's happening. Uh, how does your research workflow look today and, and what does a typical day or typical week look for you? Oh, a typical uh, day. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, typical days, usually I uh, wake up very early, like at um, usually at 5 a.m. in the morning, and then I write on my book <laughs> for like two hours. Um, then I usually okay. have breakfast and a tea and um, yeah, chill a bit, and then my workday starts. And um, mm -hmm. But in between, I also occasionally uh, check uh, Twitter just to make... So for me, it's I use it only for technical purposes instead of... So I'm not posting any personal things or something. It's for me more yeah. like staying on top of um, what's currently... Um, happening in AI research. Uh, Twitter is only one yeah. of the places. I um, I was a moderator uh, at Archive um, for the machine learning mm -hmm. category. And that built my habit also to scan the releases on Archive. Um, really? Because That's as so a moderator, cool. you had to make sure there's nothing weird in there. So you had to fix yeah. that then. And in this case, I, I just I like to scan through the articles. And I usually bookmark a lot of articles. And then in the evening, on the weekends, I usually also, when I have my um, newsletter once a month, I, uh, I, I do also summarize uh, most of the papers. So I usually pick one or two papers a week that I actually mm -hmm. read in detail. And then I would also mm -hmm. write summaries. But um, yeah, usually it's a mix between scanning archive, um, like the releases, the titles, and using um, mm -hmm. Twitter. Because um, yeah, archive gives you just more like the raw list. And um, Twitter also sometimes gives you interesting discussions because sometimes, sometimes people um, have an interesting observation, for example, that you because right. you don't have time to read all the papers. There are like hundred <laughs> or two hundred papers each day. I don't even have time many days to read even one paper. So it's like um, you have to be very selective. And uh, Twitter helps a bit with filtering um, for articles that are really there's something interesting about them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be shared. Basically, yeah. But then, of course, um, it's always also a challenge not to get distracted. So, and also, I must say. I keep up with a certain number of things, but by no means I'm on top of everything. There's just so much happening that, um, yeah, you can't. So for me, it's what's important is really picking things you are excited about. 
because that's mm -hmm. I think um, also important. Otherwise, um, I wouldn't enjoy what I would do if it wouldn't be fun. So, I mean, fun is there's a fun is on a grand. I mean, I, I enjoy reading papers, but of course, if you think about other activities, I I also like skiing. Skiing is, for example, more fun than reading a paper. But reading a paper gives me a certain mm -hmm. amount of um, confidence or pleasure or something like that. There's something about it where I enjoy doing that. And I think um, in general, it's, I think it's important to pick things that if you can uh, to pick things, topics that you find interesting, because in the long run, that is, I think, how to get uh, become successful is to, to build on that. So you have to be consistent and um, because yeah, you can't really, I think, become an expert in, in a, a week or a month or a year. It takes many, many years. And in order to, I don't know, put in the hours, because it's a lot of hours you will have to spend, you you have yeah. to make sure it's something you are interested in. Otherwise, you would drop it maybe after a few weeks or months, and then you have to start over again. So, yeah. yeah. Right. That is true. And from your perspective, right, and in, uh, uh, largely in terms of the research which you see happening today, uh, what are some of the key uh breakthroughs which you think uh, would come across or which would happen let's say in the next uh, 12 to 18 months time frame and then mm -hmm. which would kind of uh, uh, be exciting so so what are some of the trends or areas you are kind of uh, looking out mm -hmm. for in that sense oh that's an interesting question i would say um my field of view is very focused on llms so uh, at the moment um, I follow computer vision, but really most of the things I uh, know very specific to LLM. So I'm just saying there might be interesting things happening in computer vision too. But from an LLM uh, perspective, I think last year we have seen a lot of um, open source uh, breakthroughs, like starting with yeah. Llama and then Llama 2 and then all yeah. the other models that yeah. came later. And okay. we have, yeah, we have seen like, People went from 7 billion uh, parameters, uh, Llama 2, the smallest one, to 70 billion. But then 70 yeah. billion, uh, that almost gets never used in the new exciting projects or research. All the leaderboard models are mostly the 7 billion models right now. Right. And um, so last year, it was basically the towards the end of the year, I think, towards optimizing these. Um, so we, we had like uh, Mistral and then Mixtral, which is the uh, MOE. It's like... I, what I find interesting yeah. this year is really about coming up with interesting ways to get more out of the architecture that is not just um, throwing more data at it. And um, so mm -hmm. with a Mixtral, which is a mixture of experts, people combine multiple um, modules like the um, linear layers later the, uh, yeah. to make a model that is larger, but it doesn't use all the modules during inference at each time step. So it's kind of also smarter. It's not like as brute force that it was before and uh, mm -hmm. all the model merging is also another topic um so model merging would be um combining multiple models into one model so there is um stochastic weight averaging for example to um merge a model during the training trajectory trajectory or there's also um merging completely different models uh into one model. Uh, not completely they have to of course have the same weights but models trained on different data sets uh, into one model and and i feel like this is a theme where people are now focused on really optimizing um small i mean small in quotation marks small uh, large language models and uh, i think that is a trend we will 
see for at least the upcoming months where people want to get more performance out of LLMs. And of course, you can also do a lot from the data set perspective. So um, the Microsoft Phi model, I think it's just, uh, well, let's say two point something billion parameters. I'm not sure. I think 2.8. Right. Yeah. And um, mm -hmm. even smaller. And they got really great performance by focusing on data set quality, for example. So I think there are so many different directions. Um, people are really optimizing the small models. And I think this is... Um, also partly motivated by the fact that you can run them on a single GPU and you can run them in a reasonable time. So you can get the results maybe in a few months rather than a few years. But once I think people have figured that out, that can also be used to scale it to larger models. I think these the same learnings, yeah. the same uh, techniques. Um, but I think, yeah, right now, I think the trend uh, will be still exploring ways to optimize um, smaller LLMs that is mm -hmm. like adding some novelty or not i mean mixture of experts are not novel ideas but um novel ideas okay. in the context of LLMs. yeah yeah and i think there will i mean things we don't know yet uh, but i think there will be also techniques that are not um already existing and applied to LLMs. there will be some other things hard to say what it will be because it's not there yet but i think there will be <laughs> quite interesting things happening Oh, and in have the you realm tried of with, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Mamba is one of the things which is coming up. Uh, have you have you tried uh, uh, using them? And how uh, I have not. So yeah, uh, Mamba would be. Um, I think it's a selective state uh, space model, right? Um, yeah. So I I read a bit about uh, structured sp state space models and selective state space models. So hyena I think was a structured one, and it sounds interesting. So I think the idea is essentially you have something that is not a transformer it's more similar i would say i mean it's its own thing but i would say it's more similar to an rnn where you have um more like uh not the quadratic but linear um cost during inference the thing is i think with a hyena i think there's no in input dependence and i think when i re remember correctly from mama they solved that they have some input dependence which you need in language processing so that the order matters and the input uh, influences the output like the order of that and it looked very promising. I think there was also um, uh, RWKV, which is like a different approach, uh, RNN-based approach. Mm -hmm. So there are these different ways people try to develop alternatives for transformer-based large language models. I do think they are mostly on the smaller scale right now, just because um, I think the focus is efficiency, so it makes sense to have them smaller. I don't know on the large scale how competitive they will be with the largest mm -hmm. or cutting edge LLMs yet. Um, because I think the one thing to keep in mind is um, these are emerging and they are really competitive and really good, but it doesn't mean that transformers are standing still. They will also be improved. So it's like, um, but I think it's it's great that people are working on these alternatives because, um, yeah, I think that's how innovation happens because people try different ideas and how, see how far they go with that. And I think this is great. Uh, it just, I think for something like a chat GPT like scale, I don't know if they will be that good because I think um, right now they are more focused on the efficiency rather than the uh, qualitative outputs. I mean, qualitative outputs are, I think, as almost as good as the current edge. Uh, 7 billion models, but, you know, it, I, I really don't know uh, whether these will be taking over transformers. I'm 
uh, it remains to be seen. I, I think I, I find them interesting, but uh, we will see how far they can push these architectures. Yeah. Sure. Just one last uh, question, Sebastian. Uh, uh, any specific problem which uh, uh, you know you would love seeing solved using LLMs, and then you would love to see uh, great impact by solving this problem using some of these AI techniques? Hmm, I think, to be honest uh, with you, a lot of people talk about AGI. I don't know if we need AGI, <laughs> so I don't think this is a problem <laughs> I would be personally interested in. I mean, mm -hmm. I think AGI, maybe it would help with developing better algorithms, but I feel like uh, applications I have a use for are almost uh, all kind of solved. What I care about is, you know, like uh, language translation, grammar detection, um, maybe improving mm -hmm. my writing. And I don't really need an LLM that can take over my writing because um, then okay. I, I do like doing my writing myself. Um, so in that mm -hmm. case, I think right now the only thing, so what I do like is um, asking it questions sometimes also where uh, it is something in a, so for coding, especially like I have um, an implementation and there's a bug and like, hey, can you help me find that bug? And sometimes it actually, um, as a companion, it can help uh, with identifying that. And I would just like to see that becoming better. But I must say, on that trajectory, if we take the last few years and uh, we had a certain amount of progress from uh, GPT-3 to ChatGPT 3.5 and then GPT-4, if that continues, I'm quite happy. <laughs> and the same then with my um, open source LLMs, if we can get them to that state where we can also run them on our own devices and get that good results. I think... Um, I think that would be great right now. A lot of people focus on building the general purpose chatbots um, where you have an LLM that can answer questions and do all these types of things. But I think um, thinking also more about specialization, I think there are a lot of interesting applications we can already solve uh, today by just having the data. I think the data is more like the bottleneck, but um, usually you don't necessarily always need a general purpose uh, model, I think. There are lots of, um, probably in, in medicine, lots of problems that can be solved also with um, specialized models. And I think that will be interesting to see how people can adapt. Uh, right now, I think the bottleneck is really that these architectures are very compute intensive and also data hungry. So I think what I would like to see is maybe um, achieving good customizability with less data. That, that would be one thing. And um, yeah, um, so... We'll see. But I think right now, if you look at uh, small um, open source LLMs, and I think this just start. I mean, I would say it just started. People really just started uh, last year to get really, really serious about it. If you give it a few more years, I think uh, it will go a long way. Um, so I think we are all on a good trajectory there with um, seeing a lot of improvements. Um, so I don't think necessarily we will see something totally different this year, um, like something that mm -hmm. is better and has not never been seen before because I don't think that happens so quickly. Um, even with GPT, yeah. it was, I think the first architecture was out there in 2018. It takes many years uh, to get there. Um, even if you had the, even if you had an architecture that would be better, it would take uh, even a year to train it, right? So uh, I think I wouldn't yeah. expect um, something groundbreaking um, this year, but we can expect um, gradual improvement. And um, I'm That's actually so quite nice. excited about that because things work well. And um, mm -hmm. if we continue working on these things as we do, I think there is uh, exciting things at. Great. Thanks. Thanks a lot, uh, Sebastian, for sharing those insights and sharing your journey. I think uh, 
you know, ton of learnings and then uh, very interesting uh, perspective in terms of uh, some of the areas you're working on and uh, look forward to hearing back from you sometime in future. Thanks a lot for your Yeah, time. that was exciting. Yeah, thanks so much for the invitation and uh, I had a great time and uh, yeah, uh, maybe we can chat again sometime in the future. So yeah, um, thanks. Thank you. Thank you.